I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so we're in Acts 14 and 15 today. Um, Acts 14 is halfway through Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Lyle started that uh, last week uh, in Acts chapter 13. So we're picking up halfway through that journey. But what I want to do today is we're, not, we're going to finish that journey, the first missionary journey. We're also going to talk about the Council of Jerusalem. So before we get into 14 and 15, I want to show you a map of their travels, just so you can kind of have a visual in the back of your mind as we're reading through these places. Because most of these places you've never heard of, you've never been, you never even looked at this map. And even if you looked at a map current today, you would not see most of these places. So I want us to be able to have just a picture in our mind of where Paul is traveling as we're going to, uh, as we're reading through Acts chapter 14 and 15. So that's what this map is. It is a map of 14 and 15, and it is Paul's first missionary journey and the Jerusalem council. Now, it's kind of a lie because it's actually Acts 13 through 15, but we're only covering 14 and 15 today. So in 13, Paul and Barnabas started a missionary journey. They said, it's time to take the gospel uh, beyond just our region. It's time to reach the Gentiles. And it is, uh, we're going to um, leave this place. Man, you know what? I purchased a laser pointer this week. <laughs> and I had such ambitions for pointing and walking, and I left it in my bag. Doggone it. Um, all right, anyway, so just know I had something special. I just can't deliver on it. So up here in the top right, we start in Antioch. That's where they were. Paul and Barnabas were up there in Antioch, and they were working with the church there. They were there for a few years, uh, and they got this, uh, the Holy Spirit led them. They said, okay, we need to go on a missionary journey and spread the gospel. So the next city they went to is uh, uh, Seleucia. That's, this is Acts 13. Then down to Salamis. They took a boat, and they went over to this island. Then over to Paphos. This is still all Acts 13. Then they go up to Perga. Uh, that's the green line. If you're colorblind, they all look the same. So uh, the green line, they go from Paphos up to Perga. And when they get to Perga, something happens. Paul and Barnabas actually had a traveling companion with them, this guy named John Mark. When they get to Perga, John Mark, who's this young man, I, I, I guess he kind of had like, he's just, he's nervous. He's scared. Well, I'm, there might be persecution. I don't know. I'm just... I'm so far away from my mom. I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable about traveling. Anyway, he heads back. He goes all the way back down uh, to Jerusalem. So he leaves Perga and Paul and Barnabas continue on their journey. That's an important point we'll come back to later at the end of 15. So they go from Perga up to Antioch, different Antioch, right? This region's kind of like the state of Georgia. They just steal everybody's names for cities. <laughs> Athens, love it. Let's name uh, Cairo, sure. Uh, Antioch, uh, so, and then right around, but between, I, they go from Antioch to Iconium, and that's where we pick up today. So Acts 13 takes us halfway through the journey, Antioch, down to the island, Perga, up to Antioch, again, over to Iconium, and that's where we're picking up the story today. So, um, from Iconium, just a, just a quick, we're not going to come back to the map. So from Iconium, they're going to go down to Lystra. They're going to go over to Derby, And as soon as they get to Derby, they're going to turn around. They're going to go back to all the cities. And that's what that red line is. They start heading back and hit all the cities they went on the way back. With the exception of Paphos and Salamis, they go over to Italia. And then they uh, take a boat all the way back over to Antioch. All right, now once they get to Antioch, some things start happening. And they decide it's time for us to head down to Jerusalem. So that's what that purple line is they head down to Jerusalem for the Council of Jerusalem. So this is our uh, plot for today. This is where we're headed. We're starting up in Iconium. We're going to finish the journey, turn all the way back around, and then we're going to go back down to Jerusalem. So keep that in your mind, and let's get into Acts chapter 14. Starting in verse 1. It says, Now at Iconium, so the city up in the, up in the north we just looked at, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles, watch this, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So, what did Paul and Barnabas do? They stayed 
It remained for a long time. They were speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace. They were granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they, Paul and Barnabas, learned of it and fled to Lystra and then to Derbe, the cities of Lyconia, this is the region that they're in, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, now pause right there because we're starting to wade into the territory of why I wanted to group Acts 14 and 15 together. These two chapters, in my mind, have a common theme of conflict. In these two chapters, there is conflict between Jews, between Gentiles, between apostles, between disciples. There's conflict outside of the family. When I say the family, I mean the church. There's conflict inside the family. There's conflict everywhere. And one of the things that Acts 14 and 15 highlights for us is that at the very beginning of the book of Acts, you've got all this unity. And it's an interesting contrast, an interesting shift once the gospel starts spreading beyond Jerusalem. The first half of the book is unity. Everyone's like, they're selling property and they're making sure that everybody's got stuff taken care of. And it's like, man, the apostles know what they're talking about. Let's just submit to them. Let's meet together um, almost every night in each other's homes and let's study the word together. Let's pay attention to um, what God has spoken to them and let's start rearranging and submitting our lives to it. And now we start getting in Acts chapter 14 and we start seeing all this conflict. Conflict like who can, you know, who, who can be a disciple? Can Gentiles be disciples now? And if they can, then what do we require of them? How do we manage persecution? We go into a city and people don't want to hear what we have to say. What do we do? Do we stay put? Do we leave? Do we confront them? Do we raise our voice louder than them? Do we kick off our, the dirt off of the back of our shoes and do we leave the city? And then when it comes to uh, disputes on the inside of the church family, how do we handle that? Do we just make people disappear if we don't agree with them? Do we try to, find to, do, do we try to work to find common ground? Do we say, okay, here's, what, here's the most essential things and we're gonna build a foundation off of these and, and the two of us can disagree about these non-essential things, but we do agree about this essential things. How do we start managing this conflict that we see coming up within the church? And that's what these two chapters in my mind are about. It's conflict and ways to manage that conflict. Now, I don't want to say ways to resolve the conflict because not all the conflict is always resolved. Sometimes, the only way to resolve the conflict is to just move on. And it's not really resolved. So I'm using that phrase for Acts 14 and 15, that from these chapters, what I'd like to pull out is ways that these apostles in the early stages of planning the church managed conflict. Because I think that there's, I don't think we would have any argument that we could say that there is conflict today. There's conflict in the church, conflict outside of the church, and whatever they're doing to manage conflict, I think we can glean from that some principles that would help us manage conflict today. So that's where we're going today, okay? So the first conflict that comes up in the beginning of Acts 14 is this, this in Iconium, the Jews are starting to stir up the Gentiles by poisoning their minds. So the gospel's being preached, Paul and Barnabas come into town, and they're saying the truth, and right behind them, a group of people are coming in and, and trying to undercut that truth. And Luke, the writer of Acts, is telling us that the way they did it was almost like poisoning the minds of these uh, prospective believers. So the question we have today is, well, how did Paul manage the conflict of poisoning the minds of the people who were hearing the gospel? Well, the answer is in verse three. And up two, it says, the unbelieving Jews were stirring up the Gentiles and poisoning their minds in verse three. So, what did Paul do about it? He remained for a long time. Now, while he was remaining there, he was preaching the word boldly. He was demonstrating signs and wonders. But I think that the principle that we can pull from this is that in the face of poisoned minds, one of the best things that you can do to help a poisoned mind is just remain for a long time. 
Because the temptation is like, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna get much out of this, so I'm not gonna invest my time in this. Well, some of that comes from the culture we've been, we've been brought up in. <clears throat> that whatever you're gonna invest your time, or your talent, your resources in, should be, there should be some ROI on that. There should be some return on that investment, right? If there's not, then don't invest in that. Well, people aren't the stock market. People are humans created in God's image. And Paul knew this. And when he started seeing that people would spend their time polluting the minds of those who were hearing the truth, what he decided to do is not go anywhere, just stay put. And so what I'm seeing here is in Paul's mind, if I'm trying to read into um, what he's doing here, He's emphasizing the importance of patience and faithfulness and steadfastness. And he's saying, I'm not gonna go anywhere, I'm gonna put down these roots. And you can count on me. And I wonder how that could help us work to resolve conflict in the world that we live in today. What would it look like if we started demonstrating this fruit of patience? and steadfastness. That it doesn't matter what happens, you can be sure we're not going anywhere. I may disagree with you on a lot of things, but you can be sure of one thing, I'm not going anywhere, because this message isn't going anywhere, and I love you, and I live next to you, and I'm not gonna sell my house, (laughs) right? Because here's what's being sold by the world, If I disagree with you, you're dead to me. If we don't agree on every single thing, there is no common ground and we don't dialogue. We don't talk with each other. We don't serve one another. And yet we look at scripture and we see Jesus spending the majority of his time with tax collectors and sinners. Why are you hanging out at that party, Jesus? Why are you hanging out with these people that don't don't you know their background? Don't you know that they're not the kind of people that you should be spending your quality time? There's no return on investment hanging out with these people. But Jesus and Paul are communicating to us through this text the importance of just being present. Now that doesn't seem like very much to us because there's not a lot of work involved in that, right? Until you start thinking about the actual work of long-suffering literally suffering long through the nonsense of this world. But if we're just talking about what's the work involved in being present, well, you just have to be present. You're telling me that the best thing I can do for somebody that's lost is just be there for them? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. As a pastor who's sat in the living room of someone who has lost a loved one, I can tell you that the greatest thing that you can say is nothing at all. The greatest thing you can do is just be there, be present, be aware, just be there. There is so much value in just being present. But we don't see that because we think, well, surely there's something I should say or something I should do. Can I bring you something? Can Can I do something? Look, someone who's in grief, someone who's in loss, someone who's in the middle of one of the lowest points, they don't know what they need. So you can't ask them, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? They don't know. They're broken. But you know what is helpful? Just being there. Knowing that someone cares, that is close by, means everything. And this is what Paul understood. In the face of minds being poisoned, by staring at TikTok all day long, by minds being numbed by the funniest things in culture and refusing to to think about or to to, to really take serious the the heart issues inside your own. No, I don't wanna wanna think about that. I I don't wanna do that. I just wanna numb myself with humor because this world is broken. The best thing that you could do is just be present. Because sometimes it's not the things that you say. Sometimes it's just the life that you live. And when people see that joy and that love just leaking out of you everywhere you go, that has an impact. Now, I'm not saying don't preach the gospel, don't share the love of Jesus. I'm saying don't undervalue not saying anything. Let's go into uh, verse 8. 
Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. So now they've moved down to the next city in Lystra. And as they come in, they see this crippled man sitting there. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. That's interesting. So Paul could just look at the guy and see this guy's filled with faith. This guy's ready for a miracle. I can see it. It's all over your face. I don't have to hear it. I can literally see it on your face. He said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, he lifted up their voices saying in Lyosinian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland and at the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd to these two guys. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, why, men, are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature, just like you. And we're bringing you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, not a dead God. The living God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that's in it. And in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. All right, now pause right there because there's two things that stand out to me in this section. The first is that Paul could literally see that this man who was crippled had faith to be made well. And the second is that Paul and Barnabas had absolutely zero tolerance for elevating the messengers over the message. Now how does that resolve or how does that work within the our, our, our paradigm of, of looking how to resolve conflict. Well, Paul is demonstrating that he has the faith to see, he has the ability to see faith in the people around him. And I think that that's a very valuable tool for us when it comes to evangelism. And this is a tool that I use often. You can call it discernment, you can call it wisdom, but it's really just being able to see the faith inside of the people. Jesus leans on this a little bit when he's talking about sharing your pearls before swine. There's this principle that there are some things in your life that are just unbelievably valuable treasures to you. And there are some people who will treasure those things as much as you, and you should share them freely with those people. But there are some people, people like swine, who do not treasure the things that you treasure and there is no point in casting those things that you treasure above all other things before people who will not care or treasure for those things. It's like casting the seed out into the ground and some of it falls on rocky soil and some of it falls on good soil. The point I'm trying to get across is that when I'm engaging with someone and I'm talking with them about matters of faith, one of the things that's rolling around in the back of my mind is, is this person really hungry? Is this person a person who I can see on their face? They're a person of faith. Am, am, I, reading, am I reading their body language that this conversation is just invigorating them and, and it's, it's, it's exciting them? Do, do I get the impression that when I'm talking to this person, they like talking about Jesus? Or am I getting the impression that I'm talking to this person like, they, they literally, like they're just finding an out? They just want to get out of this conversation as fast as possible. Well, that's fine. If I'm reading this person and I get the sense from a leading of the Holy Spirit or just because I'm a human being and I'm decently perceptive and I can tell that this person does not want to be in this conversation with me, I'm not going to stand there and keep this person in this conversation with me because there's no point. There's no fruit that's going to come out of that. There's no point in me standing here trying to push something if it's not going to produce any fruit, but if I get just a whiff that this person is hungry, 
I will cancel the rest of my day to stay there in that conversation. Because there's no telling the fruit that will come out of a conversation where two hungry people are talking about living bread. And that principle, the idea of being able to read people, I think translates into conflict management. Because there is absolutely no point in engaging in an argument or a deep fueled conversation with somebody if you get the sense that really all they want is to get you upset. You know what I'm talking about? There are some people who are genuinely curious, and if you present a different argument or if you demonstrate to them how their ideology is actually in conflict with itself, they will sit there and they'll say, you know, I'd never thought about that before. But there are some people that they're not interested in changing their mind. They're interested in changing your mind, or they're interested in just making you look like an idiot. Look, there is absolutely no fruit to be pulled from the tree of having a conversation with someone like that. And the point I'm trying to get across here is that when we see Paul, when he walks into the town, the first thing he does is he's looking around. Who is wearing faith? Who can I tell is locked in and wants more? This crippled person, this guy over here who hasn't walked for most of his life, there's something about this guy. And so you've got these, you know, these Pharisees, they're, they're dressed up in their robes, and Paul, we'd love to have these conversations with you. Yeah, 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 I'll get to you in a minute. This guy. You see where I'm going with this? This is an important principle when it comes to sharing the gospel, but it's also an important principle for the way that we live our lives because the world loves making us look like idiots. And we love letting the world make us look like idiots. And I'm telling you that Paul is trying to share with us this principle of walking around in life with a perspective that is greater than just vertical. There is a way of getting God's view on things and being able to be as wise as a serpent, but as innocent as a dove. I can engage in this conversation if I get the sense this is gonna be fruitful and you're hungry for something. But man, if I get the sense that all you wanna do is argue and that you're not interested in growing, I've got better things to do with my time and you're not gonna bait me into one of those conversations. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. The other thing that jumps out to me is Paul and Barnabas' refusal to let the messenger get higher than the message. And here's what I mean by that. There are lots of conflicts that arise in our lives because the messenger gets elevated above the message, okay? Now I'm gonna speak just in terms of what I'm familiar with, which is pastors, the pulpit right here. So I'm not talking about you. You can make the connections uh, later, but I'm just making connection because this is the space that I'm in and I understand it. You've got messengers, pastors, people who are leadership in church, spending most of their days filling posts with things that compete with the gospel. And I'm not just talking about like hot button issues or controversial things. I'm just talking about just also nonsense. Just things that don't matter. Strong opinions on things that don't matter. Just post after post after post after post. And people follow that. And people read it. And people see it. And they start forming in their mind an image of this guy. And then when he stands up in the pulpit and when he starts preaching, guess what the people hear? It's not what he's saying. It's what he has been saying. Are you following me? Elevating the other competing messages to the gospel. And maybe they're not competing messages to the gospel. Maybe they're just messages about things that the person likes. Maybe they're just things that are not necessarily right or wrong but the life is filled with so much hobby and so much nonsense that when the person stands up there, it's like, I don't, I don't know that you actually have anything valuable to say. And so everything you say, I'm reading through the lens of what you previously posted. Because my image of you is not a person who treasures Christ above everything else. I'm, I'm reading a person who treasures everything else above Christ. Now, is that the pastor's fault? Or is that the congregation's fault? Well, I would argue that it's probably a little bit of both. 
Because it's unfair in the day we live for the pastor to not be able to share anything that he loves because the congregation's gonna read into it. But it's also unfair to the congregation because they can't hear a pure word. So how is that resolved? It's resolved the way that Paul chooses to resolve it. He says, there's only one thing that I've given my life to, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined that that was the only thing you were gonna know about me. And the moment that I get a sense, any sense, that the message I'm bringing forth is competing with the real message, that the messenger, who I am, is starting to be elevated above the message. I am gonna shut that down toot sweet. This is why I don't have any social media accounts. I used to, used to have a Facebook page, used to have a Twitter page, used to have Instagram. There's one thing I've learned over the last two years. You can't say anything without people reading context into it. And there is one thing that I value more than sharing pictures of my beautiful family. And that is you hearing the gospel. And so I made a decision, it was kind of a slow decision. I whittled it all away, little here, little there. By the end of last year, I kind of just cut it all out, deleted everything, not just deactivated, deleted, got rid of everything. And the biggest reason was because I am convinced that in the time we live, the best way for you to hear the gospel message is if you don't have to fight with where you think I stand on certain issues. This should stand on its own and and this should inform every other issue. But that becomes unbelievably difficult when somebody that you care about, that's close to you, that you look up to, is constantly throwing out and feeding these competing messages. And I think that's what is at the heart of what Paul is trying to get across. If someone's gonna be a good presenter of the gospel, somebody's gonna treasure Jesus above all other things and then share that message to everybody else, do also do the work of removing every block in the way that could possibly hinder somebody from hearing that message. Now this is radical. I was having a conversation with Sean the other day about living radical. There was a time in the history of the church when it was countercultural to be involved in social media space, to, be, to have a website. Historic, denominational churches, they weren't recording their messages and putting them online. They didn't have a Twitter page or a Facebook page where they were live streaming the services so people didn't have to come to church. They could just watch it at home in their jammies. But now we've completely flipped. And now literally everybody does that. So what does it look like for a church to not be like that? Is it most countercultural if we just disappear off the internet? Is it most countercultural to say, where's your church's Facebook page? We don't have one. What? Yeah, we're not interested in treating Sunday morning like a megaphone so that we bless everyone across the country. That's not what this is for. We're about training and equipping the people who are in this room, and if you're not in this room, then you're not the people we're supposed to be training and equipping. It's a pretty radical idea, and we still have a Facebook page and Twitter page. We're not making decisions right now, but I think that some of these things are worth considering. What is the value that's brought to the table when you have a megaphone that you can say anything you want all the time, anywhere. But the majority of what we're sharing isn't gospel. It's some slant on a worldly ideology. And this is what Paul is confronting when he comes in because this is their worldly ideology. They've only got one way of looking at the world and that is this miracle has to be connected to these gods that we worship. Paul takes that conversation and swings it the other way and says, well, what? What about that there's this one true God and he's actually been the one who's been supplying all of your needs? What if these gods you've been worshiping aren't really gods at all? He directs it back to the messenger. Now, he could have played their game. 
He could have said to them, oh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's okay, you know, you can, we'll take a little bit of celebrity worship because uh, as soon as we pull you in, we're going to direct you back to Jesus. And Paul's like, no, I'm not playing that game. I'm no one's celebrity. Jesus is the name above every other name, not Paul. So if I get one sense that this is the direction you're heading, I'm shutting it down. Now from this town, from this point forward, from 19 through 28, the men of Antioch and Iconium, which were persecuting them, followed them to Lystra to cause more division. And when they show up, the apostles left and went to Derby and preached the gospel. And when they reached Derby, they turned around and visited all the cities back to Antioch. Now these are the cities that they had been persecuted one of them, had, Paul, had actually been stoned, dragged out of the city. What is the value in going back to the cities that are hostile and you know are filled with people that want to kill you? Why not just head back over to Antioch? Just, just fish hook around and just be home. Don't turn around and go back to the cities where they tried to kill you. What is the value in that? Well, the value is in verse 22 when it tells us they went to strengthen the believers and remind them of tribulations. What is Paul telling us here? He's telling us that risk communicates value. Let's just play a thought experiment for a minute. Hypothetically, the government tells us we can't meet anymore. Not allowed to gather together. That would never happen, right? Just a thought experiment. They said you can't gather together as a people of God, not allowed. There would be a certain level of risk then involved if we did gather. But think about what that would communicate to one another if you showed up on that Sunday morning knowing there was risk involved. The value that it places on each human life knowing that I'm here doing something I'm told I'm not allowed to do. I'm running the risk of being arrested, of having my freedoms taken from me, but that is a risk worth taking, that communicates to you how valuable you are in his eyes, and that's why Paul and Barnabas did it. It was to communicate to them the value of tribulation in the life of a believer, but it was also to communicate to them how valuable they were in the kingdom of God. And this, to me, is another beautiful principle of how to manage conflict. What's the conflict? The conflict is every city you walk in, they want to kill you. So why'd you walk into the city? Because it's communicating to the people that we value you more than ourselves. So how is, how, what, is, what is most fruitful for us when we're in conflict with folks outside of the church or inside of the church. Making sure that in that conversation you make it abundantly clear, any means necessary, that I do treasure you above myself. Because what that does is in the conflict, in the, in the communication, the person is not having to sit here and think, is this person saying this because it's in their best interest? What are they getting out of this? No, you've completely removed that obstacle. I'm not getting anything out of this. If I get anything out of this, it's I'm gonna be arrested. But I'm here anyway because I value you above my own life. I am more interested in you growing as a disciple and becoming fruitful than, than me staying out of jail. Well, that speaks volumes. And if that principle can be applied on a micro scale of the conversations that you have on a daily basis, if in your body language and the way that you speak and how you arrange your time or where you spend your money, it communicates to the people around you, you are more valuable than me. When you show up at a party, you don't spend all the time talking, letting everybody know all the things you've accomplished and done. You spend most of your time listening. What does that do? It communicates to everybody in the room that you are more important and more interesting than me. Please, I'm gonna ask more questions than I'm, gonna, than I'm gonna talk. And all of that comes together in this one little thing of communicating to people, no, you are more valuable than me. I'm more interested in you. But, but, but then where does that come from? Let's, that's the micro level, let's, let's zoom out. Where does that come from? That comes from our Heavenly Father. While you were yet still in sin, Christ died for you. 
He emptied himself, considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped. But he said, no, you are are valuable to me, and so I'm going to run the risk of being murdered just to get you back because you're mine. That principle scales down into the smallest of levels in how we treat people and how we live our daily lives and specifically how we manage conflict. When conflict arises, it is important that the message you're communicating is not polluted by a previous message that you have broadcasted, but it's also important that the message is not polluted with the presupposition that you, have, you are in this conversation to get something out of it for yourself. I am here simply because I treasure and I value you as a human being and I love you more than I love my own life. All right, let's keep going. So they finally make it back to Antioch. We're in Acts chapter 15 now. When they got back to Antioch, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the other disciples were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers in those regions. When they got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So we're in Antioch. We're just going to pause there for a second. Paul and Barnabas come back from their missionary journey to Antioch, and they've discovered that men from Judea, where is Judea? That's the region that Jerusalem resides in. So you've got men from the region that Jesus ministered have now come up to Antioch, and they are preaching at this church while Paul and Barnabas are away, and they're saying, any of you Gentiles that have recently gotten saved, you're gonna need a surgery, and you're gonna have to start following the law. This is what they're teaching. Now, Paul and Barnabas had just gotten back from this missionary journey, and they were saying the complete opposite. So you can imagine how frustrated they were when they showed up, and they're operating with a certain amount of credentials and authority to be able to speak the word of God, but you've got these other men who are from the region of authority coming up and telling something opposite. So what do you do when the conflict is that two groups who hold authority are saying the opposite things? How do you resolve conflict when two parties who both hold authority are saying contrary things? Well, you do what Paul does and you appeal to a higher authority. If both, if both parties can't come to a peaceful resolution, you appeal to a higher authority. In our case, that may be appealing to, let's, let's bring in some pastoral counsel, or maybe let's consider what the word of God has to say, because there's always my view and your view, and then there's God's view. So let's appeal to God's view and not just do things my way or your way. But in this situation, the appeal was to go to the council in Jerusalem and consider what the apostles had to say. So let's see what the apostles did in verse seven. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by the mouth, the gen- that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God, the gospel, and they would believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He's talking about that situation with Cornelius. And in that moment, He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting? God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Nobody in this room follows the law 100%. So why in the world would you make them do it? Verse 11, but we believed 
that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished speaking and James, this is James, the brother of Jesus, he stood up and he said, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And he starts quoting Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Why is that important? Just a quick pause. Because the tabernacle of David was the first time that the Ark of the Covenant was placed in a tent with the doors wide open and anybody could walk by and see it. Didn't have to be a priest to go in and see it. Didn't have to be a Levite. Didn't have to be a good Jewish boy making a sacrifice. Anybody, Gentiles too, could walk by and see the presence of God. Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and that all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things great known from of old. Therefore, that's what James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We don't need to make following the law essential for salvation. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, one, and from sexual immorality, two, and from what has been strangled, and from blood, three. Why that last one? Because from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the leaders in Jerusalem get together to resolve this issue, and they consider three things. They consider the evidence of God speaking. What did God tell Peter? They consider the evidence of God working. What did God do through Paul and Barnabas? And they considered the evidence of biblical precedent. Has God said ever in his word in the Old Testament that this would come about? And upon appealing to a higher authority and this higher authority considering three things, what's God saying, what's God doing, what has God previously said, they decide that it is, seems good to us and it seems good to the Holy Spirit that salvation is in faith alone and that there is no need to put a further burden on these new Gentile believers to follow the law. That's good news, guys. That means you don't have to start studying those over 400 laws about the way you eat and the way you dress and how your clothes are mixed together. Not important, not essential for salvation, but he ends with a few concessions to encourage unity. Now he has just said, we don't have to do anything to be saved. Faith alone is what brings salvation. But James follows it up with these three concessions that are not tied to salvation. You don't do these for salvation. You do these three, three things because Moses is still taught in the synagogues and you are gonna be sitting at a table eating with brothers who have grown up with these laws since they were little. And you're not gonna be able to just invite your best Jewish friend over for dinner and serve him pulled pork. Well, why? If you're free, why can't, why? because his conscience won't allow it. It's no longer tied to a salvation issue, it's tied to a conscience issue. And he really struggles with the fact that that meat that you bought was purchased in a market where they used to sacrifice that meat to idols. It's now got a tie to idolatry. Where I've grown up, where we, we cook every steak well done. There is no blood in our steaks. And if you invite me over, you're now causing your brother to have to get over a conscience issue that is not necessarily tied to salvation, but is tied to his personal convictions. 
And what James is saying is that for the sake of unity, we're not requiring the Gentiles to do anything extra to get saved, but we are asking them to be considerate of their brothers and their sisters and don't go out of their way to do something that you know is controversial and will cause conflict. So in as much as you can, avoid conflict when you gather as a church. Consider the convictions of other believers and as much as you can, place them before your own. Be willing to put your freedom on the table because you love this brother. This is what Paul is trying to get across in 1 Corinthians when he's talking to that church about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He says, look, people who say you can't eat meat, we know they're weak. But if you're gonna invite them over to the house, don't serve meat. Don't force them to, to break their own personal convictions just because you are exercising your own freedom. Be willing to sacrifice your freedom for the love of those around you. Don't create conflict by doing things that you know violate the conscience of those around you for as much as you possibly can. So, 22 through 35, they take all of this, write it up in a letter. They send it with Paul and Bartimaeus, Judas, not that Judas, the other one, Silas, and they send them back up to Antioch, and when Antioch reads the letter, these Gentiles rejoice. Why, they've just been told you can't have your steak medium rare. Why are you rejoicing? Because you've also told them that they don't have to get circumcised. It's good news, I'll take it. But one more conflict arises and this is where we're gonna close. Verse 36, it says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Remember the guy who had abandoned them in Perga? But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them, Pamphylia, that's the region that Perga is in, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. So Barnabas took his cousin Mark with him and they sailed away to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas. And they departed, having having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the dynamic duo is now broken up over a conflict that has to do with traveling companions. Paul didn't want to bring the young man who deserted them on their first trip. His reasoning probably, if this guy didn't suffer with us, he doesn't get to enjoy or reap the benefits of encouraging these churches. You weren't with us the first time, you don't get to come with us the second time. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who's always looking for a way for everyone to get involved, is like, no, give him another shot, Paul. Paul's like, I'm not giving him another shot. And this disagreement arose. Well, the disagreement was solved by them going their own separate ways. But this conflict brings up another principle for us. What do you do if the conflict that arises within the church has nothing to do with scripture. It has nothing to do with personal convictions. It only has to do with preference. Look, Paul had a valid argument, but Barnabas also had a valid argument. So what do you do when there are two people in the body of Christ who want what they want because it's simply their preference and it's not tied to anything biblical. Well, you try as hard as you possibly can to come to a peaceful resolution so there is not a split. But you do come to a place sometimes when personal convictions, they won't give, and you just have to go your separate ways. And if you do go your separate ways, Try as hard as you can to at least be kind to one another. 
Now this split, God worked in the middle of it because now we don't have just one missionary team going out. Now we've got two missionary teams. We've got Paul and Silas on one. We've got Barnabas and Mark on the other. And it seems like the story kind of ends right there, but I preached a two-week message series on what happened after this moment. It's called The Life of John Mark. It's, on our, it's online, website. You can go check it out if you want. But essentially, as we read through Paul's letters, we find out that by the end of his life, when he's sitting in prison, almost everyone has deserted him except for one guy, John Mark. John Mark has circled back around and is staying close to Paul, helping him write and deliver letters, and has become a good, dependable friend to Paul. So, Acts 14 and 15, they remind us of one very important thing, that the people we've been called to serve and love are very messy. At ministry business is very messy. And it would be easier to just not do it. But that isn't what God has called us to do. And so while the world is encouraging us to embrace unforgiveness and cancel as many things as we possibly can, when conflict arises, arises, the Bible teaches the people of God something different. We don't run from conflict. We run to conflict. But we're not the people with the torches creating the conflict. Because Jesus, he gave us this thing called the ministry of reconciliation. And so in the middle of the world, getting each other by the throats, there is one person in that mix who has a different, higher perspective who is speaking wisdom and love and truth into the situation. And this is the time where the, the people of God, the followers of Jesus, should be engaged in these conversations in the most loving, encouraging, productive way. And sometimes that means helping the world to see how their ideology actually conflicts with itself and makes no sense. It means we're there presenting the good news of Jesus and how fixing your eyes on a greater treasure than anything made with the hands of man actually brings value and fruitfulness and eternal life. But in the midst of conflict, the Bible has given us more than enough tools on how to manage it and not run from it. Amen? On on that, let's pray together. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.